<laughs> this is Sammy Terry, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. I'd hope you have many pleasant nightmares. <laughs> It's episode 129 of Monster Kid Radio going out on September 2nd, the day after Labor Day here in the States. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. If you did anything for Labor Day, I hope you had a great time. I personally went on a little mini vacation with my wife and my mother, went up to Astoria, Oregon, had a really good time. And while I didn't see any monsters, I did see the Goonies house, which was pretty cool. Although that really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about here on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. This time around, we are going back to Monster Bash one more time. This is the last recording that we have from Monster Bash 2014. This is a recording of the talk, I Saw What I Saw When I Saw It, presented by Frank J. Delostrito. After a showing of one of his favorite movies, he talked about it. Well, what's that movie? If you read the show notes, you already know what it is. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Big thanks to Scott and Tracy Morris for actually recording this talk at Monster Bash. Big thanks to Frank for letting us play it here on Monster Kid Radio and to share it with everybody listening to the show and maybe even to encourage you to go to the next Monster Bash. There's one happening this October and then, of course, another big one next year. We're hoping to go next year as well. So, you know, if you are going to make it, maybe, well, let us know. Before we get to that recording, why don't we go ahead and talk about our website, monsterkidradio.net. It's where you can find everything that you need to know about the podcast between episodes. There's links to our YouTube channel, our Flickr album, our Live 365 station. If you're into music and sounds from classic monster movies, check out our Live 365 station. Got lots of music in there, a couple of trailers. It's just fun. It's something that I listen to during the day off and on. I hope you guys and gals dig it as well. There's also a link to our Facebook group where you can connect with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio. We also have a Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. You can like that, join the group, get involved in conversations with your fellow listeners, talk about movies that we've talked about here on the show, talk about topics that we've talked about here on the show. Recently, we've had a long discussion going on about whether or not classic monster movies should even be remade. And that spun out of a conversation that we had with Stephen E. Sullivan and Christopher Page last week when we were talking about the movie Destination Inner Space. If you're a Facebook user, maybe I'll see you over there. And I will see you back here after the talk. I saw what I saw when I saw it by Frank J. Delosrito from Monster Bash 2014. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Come on, take it all out. The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. <laughs> Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. 
plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. Thank you all for coming. I have a handout for you at the end of the talk. Don't let me forget. Uh, last year I gave my handouts at the beginning of the talk and everyone left. So, I'm sorry. This year you've got to wait. How many people have seen Abbott and Costello be friends? How many people have seen it a lot more than once? To be the hallmark of a great film is that no matter how many times you watch it, you start seeing something you never saw before. For instance, I'm ashamed to tell you how many times I saw this movie, how many decades I saw this movie, before I noticed that when Lawrence Talbert makes his first transformation to the Wolfman in the London hotel room, how the moonlight floods in in a very beautiful effect that calls no attention to itself. And when I did notice that, and I'll be honest, only because Great Manx audio commentary told me to look for it, I said, wow, that is a beautiful effect. But there are many touches like that, many, many subtleties that this movie, because it's so unpretentious, calls no attention to itself, doesn't get credit for. And I hope to walk you through some of those today, and I hope you to increase your appreciation of a movie you obviously already love. Now, Abbott and Costello are shushing me, and that's with good reason. Because sometimes when you delve too closely into a movie, it loses some of its magic. That's not going to happen today. I hope you'll like the movie even more after my talk. Uh, next slide, please. A couple of slides to get us on the same page first. Uh, when I first saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, June 24th, 1961, I had just turned 11. I did not tune in to see Frankenstein. I tuned in to see this man. I was raised on the Abbott and Costello show. I can't recall when I didn't have the Abbott and Costello show to watch every day at 3.30. And in 1958, I discovered they made movies, dozens of them. In those days, it was very hard to find out what the movie titles were, but I knew there were a lot out there. And when I opened the newspaper and saw that the next Saturday would be showing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I did not tune in for Frankenstein, I tuned in for Costello. I really identified with Luke Costello through my early years, and in a way all of us can, because all of us at some point have been a small, well-meaning, innocent, surrounded by bigger, older, maybe smarter, maybe mean people who are more worldwise and savvy, and all we're trying to do is figure out the world. 1961, I'm 11 years old, I'm old enough to know that little boys who don't grow up are going to have a rough life, and so it is with Wilbur Gray. He belongs to two unions so he can work 16 hours a day <laughs> just to make ends meet. He has a pretty limited social life. The last girl he dated had so much good work he had a paid toll. <laughs> Funny, yes, but it's kind of a dead-end existence. But calling him is the lore of gothic horror, the lore of the monsters. Sandra Mornay is trying to lure him into it. Her laboratory, Lawrence Talbert is trying to recruit him to fight evil. And he's battling it. And a lot of the movie, a lot of the movie is a tug of war for Wilbur's soul with, with Chick pulling him back into the mundane but safe life. And the supernatural figures pulling him into the world of gothic horror. More dangerous, but definitely more exciting. And that's what happened to a lot of Luke Costello's fans who tuned in to see a Luke Costello movie and were entranced by Gothic Horror. The lore caught us, it caught me, 
Quite frankly, that's why I'm here today. I, I suspect a lot of you could say the same thing. Next slide, please. We all have one other thing in common with Wilbur Gray. Sometime in our young life, we have told those bigger people, the older siblings, the adults, the know-it-all uncles, the teachers, we told them something that was absolutely correct, and we were brushed aside because we were small and easy to ignore. And so through this movie, poor Wilbur Gray insists, I saw what I saw when I saw it. He says, it, he says that or variations of it five times through the movie. And only at the end is he believed by his partner, Chick Young. Next slide, please. The movie begins, and the first face I see is not Luke Costello's or Bud Abbott's, but Lawrence Tolbert's. And right away, the young viewer knows, leave Looney Tunes behind. You're looking at a real lunatic. Lawrence Tolbert, <laughs> even the initials fit. And this is not a character you will find in other Abbott and Costello movies. He's got, he has suffered. He has death. He has, he has a history. And it's the lore of history that starts to draw the young viewers in very early in the movie and continues through the, the movie. Next slide, please. He will be joined by another character who brings a lot of depth and history with his roles. Abbott and Costello are no strangers to A-list supporting actors. Through their movies, they've had really good support. When they needed the sea captain, they got Charles Barker. When they needed the mad doctor, they got Boris Karloff. When they needed the butler, they got Arthur Treacher. When they needed the lovable old man, they got Cecil Kellaway. When they needed singers, they got Dick Powell and the Andrews sisters. All A-list people for the type of roles they were playing. All of, some of those uh, co-stars are coasting, some of them are giving very fine performances, but none of them add to their legacies except Bela Lugosi as Dracula and Lon Chaney as Lawrence Talbot. And when we talk about their legacies as actors, when we talk about their finest performance, it's not long before Abbott and Costello beat Frankenstein comes up. Next slide, please. We must not forget the women. Sandra Mornay is not the typical Abbott and Costello villainess. Joan Raymond is not the typical Abbott and Costello heroine. These, these are designing women uh, with uh, strong women, with character. We don't, we don't see, they're not the shallow characters we usually see in Abbott and Costello movies. Next slide, please. Okay, the call that starts it all. There's some earlier scenes, but Lawrence Talbot is desperately trying to call uh, to, to, from London to Florida to warn about uh, the arrival of those crates. It is difficult to explain to kids today how hard it was to make a long-distance call back in the 1950s, but it, but it was. And of course, he doesn't make it in time. The moon rises, and you can see the difference in the shading of the scenes. If you, if you haven't noticed the, the moonlight effect here, you're in for a treat. And he turns, the, he turns into the wolfman. He can't talk, and Wilbur says, oh, he growls like a wolf and hangs up. Before this is a scene I will call Wilbur's premonition. Next slide, please. It's a typical Abbott and Costello sight gag. A woman comes to the shipping office, wants her, her grip. Uh, Costello finds it at the bottom of a pile. He pulls it out. They all fall on him. He falls down. Abbott comes in and sold him. The woman walks away in a huff. A typical Abbott and Costello sight gag. But there's one thing I want you to notice in this scene. Next slide, please. This woman is wearing a fox stole over her arm. Okay? Something that is politically incorrect now, but you saw them all the time in the 1940s and 50s. One of my most vivid childhood memories, my mother took me into a shoe store and I turned around, and there I was looking right into the head of three foxes. The woman had a stole over her. No matter how the, the woman wore it, it was always an eye-level for a child. Now, I, I need a volunteer. Is there a big green volunteer out in the hallway? 
Is he going to lumber in, or do I have to get her? Oh, there he is. <laughs> Wait, this quiet. I have a volunteer with green skin. <laughs> My wife only has green skin when she puts that stuff on in the morning. <laughs> okay. All right, now. As I said, these are politically incorrect, but we have reached into the monster bash ball where Ron keeps all things that it would even hint of political incorrectness. May I have the prop, please? You put it on. Right there. Okay, turn around and face the crowd if you would. It'll be a longer talk than I thought. <laughs> all right. And Wilbur, Wilbur sees, uh, Wilbur gets his marching orders, go get the woman's grip. And he sees it, and what does he do when he sees the fox? He barks at it. <laughs> right? No doubt of Adler and Costello Adler. But within the content, thank you very much. You can sit down. <laughs> you, can, you can keep the stole for the length of the talk, but we do have to get it back to the vault. Before. Wilbur will be talking on a, on a telephone with a werewolf. He is barking at, a, at the werewolf's cousin, the fox. He has a premonition. The lure of the supernatural is already starting to take its pull on him. Next slide, please. This, this scene also sets up the entry of Sandra Mornay, who is very, very concerned about Wilbur's head, have those bags damage his head. This is an image we will see again through the movie. Next slide, please. We'll see it at the end of the movie, when Wilbur is in the laboratory, ready for his operation. Next slide, please. We'll see it a little later in the movie, when Sandra tends to the monster. There are these, this type of shots, which link a movie together, establish the unity between different scenes, go in different names. We'll call them paralleling today, where the filmmaker is trying to use the same image, the same set setups, different little tricks to bring a movie into itself. This movie is filled with them. Next slide, please. They are mainly parallels between the monsters and the comedians. This is a scene not in the movie, this is a publicity still. And you can see Count Dracula with his cape out, and Wilbur Gray is obviously imitating him. Uh, Chick Young is making no overt imitation of uh, Frankenstein's monster, but look at the line of the arm. Now, this is not a scene in the movie, this is a publicity still, but publicity stills have to be staged. Someone has to say, you stand there, you do that, etc. My guess is uh, Cust uh, Luke Costello was ad-libbing in this, but he was a comic genius that knew where the resources of his character lie. Next slide, please. Through the movie, Chick is most often paralleled with Lawrence Talbot. And there's a reason for that. Late in the movie, as part of the plot, he has to be confused with Lawrence Talbot. That's why he has a wolfman mask for the party. But as you can see, they dress alike, even down to the handkerchief and the lapel pin. The pillow pocket, uh, excuse me, the breast pocket. Next slide, please. Both men favor dark shirts with bright ties, something that discriminating men of taste still wear today. <laughs> this answers the age-old question, why is that guy wearing a tie? I mean, costume, okay, I'm sorry I don't have a mask on. Okay, the ties, I, I may be overworking this, the ties are a bit interesting to watch. Wilbur ne uh, Chip never has his tie on when the Wolfman does, when, when Lawrence Talbot does, except for one moment when he comes in the locker room and he sees uh, Talbot standing with his tie, and he immediately takes his off. 
when Will, uh, Chip is very finicky with his tie. In this, in the hotel room, and later on in the locker room, he puts it on and takes it off with a very, very uh, precise movements. And uh, there's a mo there's a scene in the film where uh, where uh, Wilbur Gray is taunting Chick. He actually takes Chick's tie and wipes it, as if to say, "Look at that!" Right? Lawrence Talbot is just the different. It's just the, the exact opposite. When that wool, when that uh, moon rises, he rips that tie off. I saw that in 1961, and I thought that was so cool. And for the rest of my church-going days, when I got home from church, all I wanted to do was get out of those lousy woman clothes. I ripped off that tie. No, no chick young for me. I was Lawrence Tom. When they finally get both get the ties off, and if you want to get a bit metaphoric here, when they finally both shed the out of an ear of civility, they, they finally on the same page, and that is when Chick picks up Wilbur's mantra, I saw what I saw when I saw it. And after that, instead of being allies who are fighting a tug of war over Wilbur, they, there's going to be enemies that are fighting a tug of war over Wilbur, they become allies. Next slide, please. You would think Wilbur would be parallel with the monster, but he's parallel most often with Dracula. This is a scene that's also almost in the movie, except it is a publicity shot. And this is the moment when Chick and Talbot and uh, Wilbur watch Dracula and Sandra arrive at the, at the uh, at Masquerade Ball. And there's Chick with his wolf, werewolf mask, no tie. Talbot with his, is fully dressed, the moment hasn't raised, risen yet. And you can see what Wilbur's doing. Now this again is an Abbott and Costello, this is a Luke Costello Abbott. This is a publicity still. And, uh, but again, he knew, he knew where the comic potential in his, his character lied. Next slide, please. Through the movie, uh, Wilbur Gray will imitate both the monster and Dracula, but he does Dracula imitations with so much more flourish, and they're the ones we remember. At one point, he even convinces the Frankenstein's monster that he is Dracula. No one would accuse Lou Costello and Bela Lugosi of looking alike. <laughs> uh, they, they get about as close as they can in this movie, mainly because uh, uh, Lugosi's carrying much more weight than he usually does. Late in the movie, there are two close-ups, which are insert shots, as they may have required different camera setups. And it sort of looks like one is trying to imitate the other. Right? Now, uh, I may be pushing finding an analogy here. If you go to the DVD and free fra freeze frame at exactly the right moment, they look even more alike than they do in these two shots that I've been able to find. Next slide, please. I may be overworking that one, but I'm not overworking the most obvious one. These designing women kiss Wilbur. And Dracula kisses them. In this movie, when lips meet flesh, either Wilbur's on the receiving end or Dracula's on the giving end. Next slide, please. Wilbur may not be the only one with premonitions in this movie. The, uh, just as, as uh, Wilbur's first scene has what I call a premonition, so does the monster have. To me, the best sight gag in the movie is when Dracula immobilizes Wilbur wakes up the monster, the monster gets up in the Google's house of horrors and sees all these horrible sights. They don't face him at all, but he sees Wilbur and he is terrified. <laughs> so much so that Dracula has to come and comfort him, saying, don't worry, he won't hurt you. Of course, Dracula's lying. This brain, that Dracula has his way, is going into that head. And the brain that's in there now is going into the garbage. Does the, does the monster sense that? Does he know that? Well, we can only guess. I don't know what's happened before those crates are open, but I know what's happened afterwards. Next slide, please. Both in the cove, in the dungeon, and in the lab, 
The monster can overhear what's going on. The poor beast is almost uh, immobilized. He, he, can, he can barely stand. He can't do anything about it, but they're discussing these operations in some detail right in front of them, rather callously. <laughs> As you can see, when, when Sandra gives her, um, her detailed account to Wilbur what's happening, the monster's only a few feet away, feet away. He can hear. Next slide, please. The scene with Sandra and Wilbur has a weird touch to it. The only genuine affection shown in the movie. May I have another tall green volunteer? <laughs> okay, while, he's, while he's making up his mind. <laughs> as you can see here, she has, she has Wilbur by the, the wrist as she's talking to him. But, excuse me, just turn this way if you would. Hold it right there. As she talks to him, and you can watch this scene, as she talks to him, she takes her hand off the wrist and she ever so gently caresses the back of his hand with hers. And she's stroking this as she is describing the operation. Thank you very much. We always have questions about Sandra Mornay's background. All we know is that she is wanted by the European police for those curious operations. Is she a concentration camp doctor? What is she up to? And this obviously arouses her. She really likes talking about the operation. Go back and watch that scene and watch her hand. Next slide, please. Okay, I think the monster is listening. Because as soon as he gets full strength back, he does two things. He gets rid of the doctor and he goes after the donor. Now in 1961, when I saw this movie, him, him taking her and throwing her out the window was a bit of a shock. I might have been even more shocked than I had seen the Frankenstein movies, which I hadn't. This is the first female victim the monster has had since Bride of Frankenstein. It's the first time he's even laid hands on a woman since Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. He goes after Wilbur in what I would argue is the monster's only pursuit in the whole Universal series. In Bride of Frankenstein, when he's in league with Praetorius, in Son of Frankenstein, when he's in league with Igor, he does go after specific people, but that's on commands, I wouldn't call those pursuits. Otherwise, the monster's victims are either in the wrong place at the wrong time, or he's defending himself against them. This is the only one where he, he pursues them through the whole castle and down to the harbor. It's the only movie where he uses a weapon. In Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the blind monster does pick up a log to fend off things, but, uh, but here he's using a projectile. He's actually, you know, with a victim in mind that he can see, he is trying to kill that man. His mission is clear. Get rid of the doctor, get rid of the brain, and I'm safe. Next slide, please. Okay, as all the melodrama is unfolding, Wilbur, and through Wilbur, young fans like me are being drawn into the world of gothic horror. Right? So the indoctrination begins. At MacDougall's House of Horror, a lightning bolt lets Wilbur see what has been hidden in him so far. In my life, I'm now old enough to see scenes that my parents would let me see. There's all these horrible things in there. And one of them, right there, never easy to see, is the Invisible Man. Who's got his suit on and his bandages, but is the Invisible Man. Is it, is it the real Invisible Man or is it a mannequin? Remember, Dracula poses as a mannequin briefly, just to evade detection. You will most clearly see the invisible man when the phone call comes to McDougal's house's horrors and Chick answers it. He is right over Chick's shoulder. You'll see him before Chick picks up the phone and right after. The invisible man is there, and he may be watching the whole movie with us. We'll see him a little later. The other thing that Chick, uh, that Wilbur does is he reads the legends of the monsters. A lot of Abbott and Costello comedy is Abbott 
trying to explain the world to Costello. Costello never quite gets it, but his young viewers do. I, and I imagine a lot of you, learned a lot about the world just by Abbott trying to pound things in the world. Costello's head, never quite succeeding, but he works with us. And here, if young viewers don't know enough about Dracula and the, and the monster to appreciate the movie, Wilbur's going to read it to us. Next slide, please. There is a moment in this movie I'll always remember, and I don't know why. They pull back the canvas from Dracula's coffin. Chick looks at that and says, Dracula's crest. I have never looked at a TV screen more closely to see if it said Dracula's Crest, because how do you know? And this is not Dr. Van Helsing, this is a baggage clerk from Florida. <laughs> he says the Dracula, and I'm looking there, and I, you know, and I, for many times after that, when I saw the movie, I'd look at it and say, how does he know it's Dracula's Crest? Young people are very sensitive about what everybody knows except them. And I said, no, this is, I kept thinking, I gotta, how does he know that? This is something I'm supposed to know. Next slide, please. Then comes a real hook for uh, young viewers. Dracula says, I do not wish to repeat Frankenstein's mistake. There's been a past here. There's a history here that I don't know anything about. Next slide, please. Dracula's full statement is, I do not wish to repeat Frankenstein's mistake. This time, there's been past. The monster must have no will of his own, no fiendish intellect to oppose his masters. Well, the next few years after seeing this movie, I'll see the Frankenstein movies, and I realize that's not really a good summation of what's going on. I think Dracula is talking about himself. Next slide, please. Because vampires know good help is hard to find. <laughs> okay. in, uh, in 1931, Dracula Renfield loves his master so much that he tries to disrupt his plan to take Nina as his bride, and then he unwittingly leads the vampire hunters right to Dracula's hiding place. In uh, 1943, Bela Lugosi as Armand Tesla has a van as a werewolf slave who adores his master, but he doesn't handle rejection too well. And when he when Dracula, uh, excuse me, when Tesla turns his back on uh, the, the werewolf, he, he comes to know the vengeance. Next slide, please. So, the driving force of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is Dracula's plan to get the supernatural isn't working for him. He's going to go to mad science to get the slave he needs. Next slide. Indoctrination continues. The Secrets of Life and Death by Dr. Frankenstein. A different title in each movie, but it's a captivating book. Within a year of seeing this movie, I, with my own money, will buy paperbacks of Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, uh, Phantom of the Opera, and the short stories of Edgar Allan Poe, and I, on my own time, without being assigned anything at school, will read them. That hasn't happened before in my life. Because the lore of the tapes, the sacred text to young viewers, if you read this, you'll know it. You'll have it down pat. is irresistible. And, but the book I really wanted to read was The Secrets of Life and Death by Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> and in 1961, my eyes could still focus fast enough to read things quickly, and we get to see a page of Frankenstein's notebook, and what it says is, my research is based on the premise that all things even thought are material. A rather provocative statement for a juvenile comedy aimed at mainly 12-year-olds, right? And actually, it's not a bad summation of what the problems the Frankensteins have when I finally see the movie. The, uh, they never were able to look past the creature they brought to life and see the soul within it. Had they, things might have gone much better for them. Yes, Father Mike, I'm afraid Dr. Frankenstein was an atheist. <laughs> we discussed that yesterday. Okay, next, next slide, please. 
And then the, the hook for me, that, at, which, at which point I knew I'd never stop watching horror movies, was at the end of the, near the end of the movie, as a setup to the finale, Lawrence Talbert at last meets Count Dracula. There's a lot to see in this scene. You can see the paralleling. Chick has eyes only for Lawrence Talbot. Wilbur is looking directly at Dracula. Sandra has her marching orders, so she's looking at directly at, at her prey. The only two sets of eyes that are meeting are Lawrence Talbot's and Count Dracula's. Dracula is a little bit surprised, a little bit amused, a little bit concerned. The man to watch in this scene is Lawrence Talbot. Dracula will answer him, and when Dracula speaks, Talbot does two things. He breaks off the stair and looks to the ground. And this assertive fist opens up and looks exactly like the submissive paw that canines and, and wolves will offer to the alpha male. Dracula, with one reply, has disarmed Talbot. What did he say? Next slide, please. What an odd hallucination. But the human mind is often inflamed with strange complexes. I suggest you consult your physician. This is not a throwaway line. Dracula is taunting Talbot. Next slide, please. For Dracula may know that all that Lawrence Talbot has ever done is consult physicians. In the Wolfman, it's Dr. Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd's prescription for everything is a good rest. I've been following that for a long time, and it works. In Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Lawrence Talbot turns to Dr. Mannering for help, but Dr. Mannering becomes more interested in Frankenstein's monster. In House of Frankenstein, he turns to Dr. Niemann for help, but Dr. Niemann is more interested in Frankenstein's monster. In Doc House of Dracula, he finally finds good Dr. Edelman who does help him, but even there, Dr. Edelman needs some convincing to not to turn his intentions to the Frankenstein's monster. Next slide, please. The curses of Lawrence Talbot are one that he's a werewolf, and two, that every time he comes back from the dead, he is forced to replay his family drama. With the mad doctor as his father surrogate for his, his rather aloof and demanding father John, and the comatose monster as a surrogate for his dead brother John the Younger. John the Younger's portrait looks down on the whole proceedings of the Wolfman, half in light, half in shade. Next slide, please. So where's Dracula in Talbot's saga? We meet again, Count Dracula. Where is he? Well, in 1944, uh, Universal played with the idea of Dracula meeting uh, the Wolfman. I think they wisely put this aside and did House of Frankenstein instead. Uh, both Dracula and, uh, and Lawrence Talbot are in House of Frankenstein, but they never meet. Dracula is destroyed before Lawrence Talbot is, is uh, released from the ice. They meet ever so briefly in House of Dracula. Uh, the sun is rising, Dracula is running towards his coffin. He goes through a room where Talbot is sitting, their eyes never meet, they never really meet. If Dracula is owed any payback by Lawrence Talbot, it's because good Dr. Edelman, who tries to help Talbot, is changed by Dracula into evil Dr. Edelman. Or good Dr. Edelman, who pays attention to Talbot, becomes evil Dr. Edelman, who only has eyes for the monster. If, if Lawrence Talbot owes Dracula any payback, it's because he is forced to kill the one doctor that helped him. Next slide, please. Maybe there's other things that at work. Maybe when Talbot looks at Dracula, he sees the face of the werewolf that bit him. Maybe when Talbot looks at the monster, he sees the face of that, that surrogate older brother that always usurps him in the, in the attentions of the surrogate father. 
And for that matter, when the monster looks at Dracula, maybe he sees the home of the brain, the, the home of the brain that is now in his head. Because at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, Igor's brain goes into the monster, and that's where it still is. And I think I still meet Frankenstein, it's Igor's brain that's running through that house. Next slide, please. So they finally meet the Wolfman and Dracula. They have never met on screen before. And there is so much you can see in this scene. This is old world versus new. This is instinct versus intellect. This is the avenging son come home to save his helpless siblings from the devouring parent. This is the incarnate rage of Lawrence Talbot focused on the evil incarnate of the father. Next slide, please. We've always thought of the Wolfman as a mindless killing machine. But three times in this movie, he's in a position to tear Wilbur to shreds. And three times he stays his hand. Next slide, please. Maybe somewhere in that primordial mind is a memory of promises that were broken and prayers that went unanswered. And that delays him just long enough for Wilbur twice to escape and for Dracula to return. Next slide, please. And when he returns, all the rage comes to the surface and is focused on Dracula, and Dracula knows it. And this time, it is Dracula, not Lawrence Talbot, who breaks off the confrontation and flees. Next slide, please. And it ends the only way it can, because the Wolfman cannot relent. He will not stop until he destroys Dracula, even if, it, even if it's his own life. There are people who say, with good, with good argument, that this fall should, should affect neither a vampire nor a werewolf. And Lawrence Talbot had a very similar fall at the, end, in the beginning of House of Dracula. My response to that is, in the Book of Werewolves, excuse me, in the Book of Vampires, I can't find anything where it says how vulnerable a vampire is to the claws and teeth of a wolfman. But I do know one thing, Count Dracula himself, played by Bela Lugosi himself, has no doubt that he's in danger. As for Lawrence Talbot, he's been killed and cured so many times, they never took effect. What he was always missing was the perfect victim. That if he found that, if he had that incarnation of the evil father and destroyed it, he would be released. And he gets the peace that he's always wanted. It's a victory for Lawrence Talbot in every sense but one. Next slide, please. I sit down at 2 o'clock a Luke Costello fan, and I walk away at 3.30 a Bela Lugosi fan. <laughs> and when that movie's over, I want to see all the monster movies, and I want to see everything with Bela Lugosi. Next slide, please. Lugosi hooks me from his first scene. Those eyes. I have not heard his voice yet. At this point, I'm not even sure he has a mouth yet. <laughs> but it was this scene that captivated me. When I ask myself why, it goes back to my association with Luke Costello. Next slide, please. Luke Costello is in the House of Horrors, terrified. He backs into a guillotine. It falls, lops the head off a, a mannequin, and... I got bad news for you younger brothers out there. Older brothers are no help when the going gets rough. <laughs> Chick Young just says, now nah, you've done it. And Wilbur goes to the, opens Dracula's coffin, not to see what's in there, but to dodge the evidence that he's been a bad boy. And when he wakes it up, Dracula looks him right in the eye. And we see Dracula, not as a vampire, not as some undead creature. This is the stern authoritarian adult who was caught as red-handed doing something we shouldn't have done. And I think at that moment, I transferred from loving at Luke Costello to serving Bell Huggins. Next slide, please. Well, the indoctrination is complete, but the humor is not. There's one ingenious touch of humor to come. Wilbur and Chick escape the island, and on the, in the boat, 
Wilbur gives chick an earful. The next time is the chick young that I tell you I saw something when I saw it. You believe me that I saw it. And chick says, oh, relax. We've seen the last the Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Monster. Well, they're both right. But uh, 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 Wilbur did see what he saw when he saw it. And chick is right. They'll never see Dracula again. But there's one monster you can't see. And that's the Invisible Man who may have been watching the whole story unfold. Again, again the, the last example of wit that calls no attention to itself. Well, if you think about it, wow, what a great combination of a play on words and, and, and the image. And of course, Adam and Costello flee. The humor is done, but the paralleling is not. Next slide, please. The last time we see Wolfman and Dracula, they are falling into the waters around the island. The last time we see Chicken Wilbur, they are jumping into the waters around the island. None will ever be seen again, except the next time we watch the movie. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Big thanks to Scott and Tracy Morris for recording that. Again, you know... Going to these conventions with fellow podcasters is awesome because they typically have their own recording gear. So they're recording things while you're off doing other things. I recorded with so many people at Monster Bash. It's just impossible to get it all in at once. So Scott and Tracy did me a huge solid. And of course, big thanks to everybody who put Monster Bash together and to Frank J. Delostrito for putting on that presentation about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Also, in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio, you're going to hear some more special thanks. These are people who have contributed to our Patreon at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. You can become a patron of this podcast and help us keep the lights going and pay for certain bills here at Monster Kid Radio. I'm talking about things like hosting the website, acquiring the URL, keeping us in movies to talk about here at Monster Kid Radio with Netflix and Classic Flicks and things like that. And eventually we're hoping to get to the milestone to where you can help get Monster Kid Radio back to the next bash. Starting with the next episode of the podcast, I'm going to start giving out some of the rewards that people who have pledged to the podcast so far have earned. So stay tuned for that if you're a patron of Monster Kid Radio. And if you're not, well, I encourage you to check it out. You can find the link in the show notes. Here in a couple of days on Monster Kid Radio, we're also going to talk about, well, honestly... I'm not 100% sure yet. Like I said at the top of the show, I spent last weekend in Astoria, Oregon, tooling around and didn't do anything classic monster movie related, so I don't have anything in the can just yet. But we got a couple of days. We'll figure something out. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. (laughs) 